0: Good morning, church. Uh, let's go ahead and get our Bibles and Bible apps open to Luke chapter one. That's where we're going to be today. Um, what a couple of amazing weeks we've had here at NBC! And December is going to be incredible. I can't wait uh, for we got man, we got Merry Christmas madness. We got Christmas Eve services. We got Christmas in the park. We got all these great things coming our way. I can't wait for them. And we've we've just man, Thanksgiving food drive, and then the women's tea, which was like, I wasn't there, but man, the, the legend grew uh, as the day went on. And so, I mean, God is just moving in our church. And I love talking about that stuff because good news is fun to share. When there's something going on that you, um, you know, if, if, if you got an A on your paper when you were a kid, you wanted to go tell your parents. You didn't go uh, slowly or, oh, yeah, mom, dad, guess what, I had? You know, you, you got out there and you proclaimed to them, mom, mom, dad, guess what? I got an A. You know, and especially if you were one of those people that uh, you're a first-time A person and never gotten one in your life, they you were really excited, right? And they go, did you cheat? Would be the, the follow-up. And go, no, no, I got a good one, right? And you guys would celebrate. They got all A's on my report card. Uh, hey, um, you know what? Hey, guess what? Honey, I'm pregnant, Right? We'll talk about that one a little bit later because we've got some uh, miraculous conceptions going on this morning, but whenever you've got good news, it's a blast to share. Isn't it fun? So I want to suggest to you today that the gospel is good news. Fundamentally at its core, it's good news. And even the parts of it that come on the lips of John the Baptist, who we're going to take a look at this morning and his whole uh, life and ministry and things like that, that come across as maybe a little bit barbed, they're never seen that way in scripture. They're always seen... As good news, they're not seen as something that we need to apologize for, or that he's this kind of grumpy uh, cousin of Jesus that goes around with brimstone message while Jesus comes in and is the nice guy and is peace and love and goo and all that stuff all the time without a prophetic edge to him. Neither one of those is really the way that Scripture sees itself, which is one of the ways that you ought to interpret the Bible: is how did people hear it at the time? Did they see it as bad news or good news? Well. In this case, the ministry of John, they saw it as overwhelmingly good news. When Jesus comes to earth, they are ironically see some of his stuff as bad news because they're so bad that even when he shares good news with them, it, it, it has a, uh, oh, I guess it's like hitting a tuning fork the wrong way or something. The sound of it is very, very strange to them. I want you to consider this. We see in the ministry of John the Baptist, a man who comes pointing to Jesus and even though the message that he proclaims is one of repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is near, that, that's, that that is perceived as good news, and it's the same ministry that we have. The willingness to say it first, to say it by ourselves, to say aloud, loud, uh, and to do it with the conviction that it is good news that God hasn't turned his back on the world, that he hasn't just resigned himself to letting us turn this into our personal litter box, but that he has, in fact, called us to repentance in Jesus. The song on which this series is named, And Triumphant, uh, goes like this. O come all ye faithful. I heard uh, DJ introduce you to Johnny Bowtie Barstow last week. I won't do that today, but the old hymn goes, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels. The king of angels, right? So the idea is you go to Bethlehem, you you stare, you behold him. And because of his glory, we enter that whole experience joyfully and triumphant. The triumphant ones are us, but we're triumphant because he was triumphant first. That's the message. Now we're going to go back in time to where this all kind of kicks off. Luke chapter 1. Now, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel appears to tell her of the Christ that's in her womb, Zachariah, who's a relative of Mary's, he's a priest. He overflows with praise. He's ecstatic at the birth of his son. He was a priest after all. His wife Elizabeth was descended from Aaron as well, we're told, which means you got great pedigree there for the priesthood. So there, he's a priest, and if you were thinking about in your daydreams, if you're a priest, and you talk about and try to point people toward the coming of the Messiah, and it's been as long as it has, and then you get word that the one who is going to pave the way for his arrival is going to be your boy. I mean, that has to be better than finding out it's you or you know, yourself. You'd rather have your kids do it. We parents know that sometimes watching our kids accomplish something is a lot better than watching and than us experiencing it ourselves. It was that time of year when the priests cast lots to see whose turn it would be to go burn incense in the temple. So the priests would get together, and it's casting lots is just a little bit like uh, sort of like rolling dice, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But they basically get together and all right, who should do it today? Let's flip a coin, let's roll some dice or whatever. And it lands on Zechariah. Zechariah is fairly old we're told. And so he goes into the temple to burn the incense. Now, there's not supposed to be anybody in there except him. So when the angel appears, it startles him. You can't, you can't sneak up on old preachers like that. He wasn't, he wasn't expecting anybody to be in there. And the angel tells him, as is often the case when angels appear in the Bible, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he gives him this wonderful news that he and Elizabeth's prayers have been heard Elizabeth was unable to bear children, but that she will now bear a son. And this was to thrill Zechariah's doubting heart. He'll ask later how he can be sure, but for the moment, he's stunned. And here's what happens next, Luke chapter 1, 14 to 14-17. This is the angel talking to Zechariah. He says, of this child to be born, "'He will be a joy and a delight to you, "'and many will rejoice because of his birth, "'for he will be great in the sight of the Lord.'" For the Lord, a people. Okay, remember that part too. Not a guy, not a gal, a people prepared for the Lord. So there it is. Does it get any better than that? I mean, as a priest of God at his age, to be told that your son, your boy, is going to be the forerunner, the the, the Elijah who was to come, the prophet announcing the arrival of the Messiah that God's silence was about to be broken, that the great deliverer that had been told about was finally arriving. I mean, he's at an age where he should be playing with his grandkids, but he doesn't have any because he never had any kids. Now he's told that he's going to have a child, and so he makes a mistake. He asks a question. How is this possible? Now his reward for asking that question is he gets his mouth zipped until the birth of the child. The angel says, because you doubted my words, you won't be able to speak until after the child is born. And so what happens next is a mixture of tragedy and quite frankly, comedy. Zachariah, whose heart is bursting with anticipation and praise, can't say anything. Now this isn't like a deal where you just hop on your computer and you send an email or you put out a social media post. Like your words are are pretty much everything you got. And so we learn then, Zachariah resorts to hand motions to convey what he's thinking and feeling. So think about a game of charades in which you're trying to get this one across to people around you, even your own wife, and trying to come out and go. Now, everybody, by the way, still. Outside the temple, waiting what's taking Zachariah so long when he comes out, he can't speak, and so even though he has this tremendous message, hey the Messiah is coming, and hey, guess what? My son is going to pave the way for him and Elizabeth, my wife is pregnant. he all he can really do is kind of like, you know, hey, two words sounds like I mean he can't, he can't say anything. And so the irony is his son is going to be the one who proclaims all this good news, but Zachariah can't say a thing. I mean it's kind of funny and it's kind of tragic at the same time. You go, man, what a downer to not be able to just shout it from the temple rooftop to be able to say, that's my boy. Check it out. He's going to be the one, and guess what? He's going to be the harbinger of the Messiah himself. He's going to call people to repentance. He's going to help us prepare ourselves to be a people after the Lord. This is fantastic. So, Elizabeth gets the message somehow. She lives separately in some sort of seclusion, we're told, until John is born. In her sixth month of pregnancy, which is close to the the zenith of misery in pregnancy, um, Gabriel shows up to Elizabeth's relative by the name of Mary, who becomes the mother of Jesus. Uh, And she's a virgin. She is told by Gabriel that she's going to give birth miraculously as well to God's son. And as proof, Gabriel tells her, hey, by the way, your relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. So Mary makes haste, takes off, heads over to Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth hears the young voice of Mary, the baby inside her, who will be called John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, leaps for joy inside of her. I always wondered, when it leapt for joy, how do you know it's a joyful leap? I mean, is it a a fist pump you could feel? or Like, what was going on in there? How do you know that that's actually a a leap for joy? But everybody seems to know it's a leap for joy. Just the sound of Mary's voice. It's like the baby is excited. Like, let me out of here. I'm ready to go preach. I mean, it's incredible, this story. So she heads to, again, Mary's at Zachariah. Uh, In Elizabeth's house. Uh, And all poor Zachariah can do is is play charades. He can't say anything, really. He can see and he can hear. Um, But three months later, when the boy is born and everybody's celebrating the birth of this yet unnamed boy, everybody assumes he's going to be called some version of Zachariah Jr. after his dad. But Elizabeth shocks everybody when she says his name shall be John. Everybody looks awkwardly around, and they like, uh, Elizabeth, uh, correct us if we're wrong. Nobody in your family has that name. So they go to old man, Zachariah, buzz his heart, still very quiet man, <laughs> and he asks for a writing tablet, and so they give him like a little chalkboard, and he writes out on it, Ioannes estin onoma autu, his name is John which means Yahweh is gracious. And at that very moment that he writes it, as soon as he writes, his name is John, his mouth bursts open. And all of a sudden now he explodes with four months of pent-up words. And he starts going. And in Luke 1:68, he starts singing. He starts exclaiming. And here's what he says. After many months of wanting to say stuff, here he goes. He says, "'Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and redeemed His people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of His servant David, just as He promised through His holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering His sacred covenant, the covenant He swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham.'" We have been rescued, this is a good one to underline, we've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, now he starts directing it to to his baby boy, you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. And it says, John grew up and became strong in the spirit. Boy, did he ever. And he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. John grew up strong in the spirit indeed. In fact, Jesus says he is the goat among men born of a woman. Now, what makes them that? Some things are so great that the one who actually gets to share the news is given an unusually high honor. You ever done that with something that's kind of a big news item? You you nudge somebody and say, hey, 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 you know, can I be the one to tell him? Well, in this case, he was divinely chosen John was chosen. Zachariah was chosen. Elizabeth is chosen. Mary was chosen for her own ministry. We'll talk about her another time. But, but right now you have this man, John the Baptist. And he comes saying, this is good news, folks. Jesus is good news. What brings Zachariah's heart so much joy isn't just the fact that he's going to have a son, what pours forth through his song of praise is that he realizes that God is making good on his big promises. I mean, the big ones, the, the, that the Messiah would come, that there would be this descendant of David that would always sit on the throne. And he says, that one is now here. He's coming and there's going to be a harbinger and his name will be John. And he's going to help us get our act together so that when the Messiah comes, we are going to be ready. We're going to be ready to turn our face back to God We're going to be ready to experience the blessings that were always foretold. And so Jesus is the good news, right? And John is the deliverer of the good news. But it's he that's trusted. It's him that's trusted. Now, God has a way, because we tend to miss things, of sending a signal of light to remind us that life is stronger than death, that light is more powerful than darkness. That God is more powerful than Satan. The good will overcome evil. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, the prophet said. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Well, the darkness has a way of um, concealing things. You know, some of the reason that we we like candlelight dinners when we're going out with our significant others is because it hides our wrinkles. And uh, most of the stuff that goes on at night that's not good happens in the darkness. It never happens in broad daylight. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Most crimes, most drunkenness, most immorality occurs under the cover of darkness because it's easier to conceal our behavior. In fact, when Jesus is arrested, he says to them, he goes, I was teaching in the daytime in the temple. Why didn't you arrest me then? And then he says, now is your hour when darkness reigns. And so the theme of light and darkness, you hear it in the song of Zechariah. You'll hear it in the preaching of John. You'll hear it in the ministry of Jesus. The world is viewed as prior to him as a very dark place. But now the light has broken in. About a month after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph will take him to the temple. And there will be a prophet there by the name of Simeon who it had been revealed by the Holy Spirit uh, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. So he's been waiting a while. Here come Mary and Joseph. They take baby, uh, baby Jesus and put it in his arms. And Simeon prays. He says, Lord, now you can dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the sight of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. He blesses... Um, Zachariah does his new son with this song of praise to God and he does it because he knows that his son is going to be that harbinger and John grows up fierce in the spirit and he seems to be fearless as he walks around in camel's hair grazing on locusts and wild honey crying out in the wilderness for people to repent for the kingdom of God is near now we a a lot of us we shy away from John's preaching because it seems a little sharp to us. He's a little quirky. His Diet's quirky. The way he looks is weird. And his message seems very blunt, especially anything he delivers directed at the king or at the Pharisees or any governmental authorities. And so we tend to skip past John too quickly and go on to Jesus. But remember, Jesus said, nope, nope, nope. You want to see a great ordinary man, the greatest of them all, is that guy right here, John. So pay attention to him. So, okay, what what is there to pay attention to? Well, I'm going to suggest today that John offers us the ministry of hope through repentance, the proclamation of that, that message, that he offers us the words and the paradigm to say that in Christ we are triumphant, that Jesus was triumphant. And because of what he's done, we too are triumphant. And to do that when we feel completely alone. John has a distinction. He really is the first one. Before Jesus is even on the scene. Imagine that being your sermon. Everybody repent because there's a guy out there. You can't see him yet, but he's here. So pay attention, repent, turn your life around, come be baptized in the Jordan. Why? Because there's a guy and he's coming. And, and they probably thought to themselves, yeah, we know we've been waiting for him for like a thousand years. But wh- what do you mean? Well, this guy, well, I know him. He happens to be related to me. Well, where is he? I don't know. He'll be here though. Trust me. And that's a hard thing to do. And he does it from the wilderness. He goes out to the wilderness and there he sits. Now, remember back in the The prophecy of of Gabriel, when he's talking to Zechariah about the child he's going to bear, he mentions that he will have the spirit of Elijah. I mean, Elijah. You know, we always think of Elijah's highlight reel, right, which is the Baal prophets scene on Mount Carmel. He challenged the Baal prophets to a duel. All right, my God versus your God. You guys go ahead and go first. And you guys go ahead, and we're going to call down fire from heaven. And so there he goes. He, they all build their stuff, and they, they, get, they keep begging Baal to do something. But, of course, Baal didn't exist, so he doesn't do anything. And Elijah mocks them mightily. Oh, you know, maybe he's on vacation. You know, maybe he's using the bathroom. I don't know. Talk a little louder. Maybe I'll hear you. And he just kind of mocks them. And then with, he takes, hey, pour some water on the wood here. And so they do it, and they do it. And then Elijah speaks to heaven. Down comes fire from heaven devours the whole fire pit and everything around there and the prophets of Baal are defeated and we go, Elijah, awesome. The the lesser known story about Elijah is when he wants to throw up his hands and quit. Because he says, I alone am left. And God says to him, don't flatter yourself. You're not alone. And he says in 1 Kings 19, 18, he says, Yeah, I'll preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed a knee to, to Baal or kissed them. He says, I got 7,000 others, Elijah. I know you feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. So which spirit of Elijah is John supposed to have? I'm sure it's the Baal prophets one. That comes in real handy when you're by yourself or you feel like many people do today, like, are we the only ones? The Apostle Paul felt it at Corinth. We skipped this in our study of Acts, but in Acts 18, he's there at Corinth, and he's, he's had a few conversions here and there, but he knows that the, the, the tension is built and that danger is coming his way, so he's getting ready to pack up and leave Corinth. Here's what God says to him. It, it, it says that uh, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, For I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. It's an Elijah moment. I got a lot of people here, Paul. I know they're not acting like it right now, but they're here. So they're not living like it. They're not as bold as you are or whatever, but they have your back. They will have your back. Just go do your thing. And so he does, and it says uh, he stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. Perhaps God's response to Elijah, God's response to Paul, is a good one for us who find ourselves in a world where we feel very outnumbered, very overpowered, and very under-resourced. Say it louder. Turn up the volume. Because you're not alone, even if you feel like it. See, John the Baptist is quite literally alone at this point. Um, He's the first one to really do that. Now, there are some other people that know. Zachariah knows, Mary knows, Elizabeth knows, but they're not seeing anything. They're, they're not out there the way John is. And I got to say, I think it's easy for people in the world that we're living in to feel the temptation to turn the volume down on their faith, right? When you're working, don't, don't let anybody know what you think. When your friend asks you for advice, go ahead and give him advice that you know comes right out of the Bible, but just don't tell them where it comes from. So they'll think you're smart and wise, Uh, but but you don't want them to discount it because it happens to come from scripture, you know, because Jesus said it. You know, now when I say say it louder, I don't mean it literally. I don't mean walk into your office on Monday and go, Jesus is king in the middle of the office. Say it wiser too, but say it louder. John teaches us in his boldness, just like Elijah, just like Paul, it's not unusual to feel outnumbered. But the beauty of the gospel is that on the one hand, we're called to stand alone when we must, but that we rarely are in reality. We just feel like we're by ourselves. We have been sent, like John the baptizer, to proclaim the coming of God's Son, to proclaim that light has triumphed over darkness, to call other people to repentance, so that they can be set free from their sins and, and as we await the second coming of Jesus. We are supposed to be modern-day John the Baptist. He blesses uh, his new son, Zachariah does, because it's been ordained that he will give people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. And that was John's specialty. He went around and he would say, Jesus is greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is stronger than I am. His baptism is different. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and, and with fire. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice alone is sufficient for you. So as great as John is, he's under no illusion that it's about him. He's willing to stand by himself and teach the truth if he must, but you get the sense that as this groundswell begins to happen, and as Jesus' public ministry, John starts to draw a, a disciples to himself. We're told, and then he keeps telling them, "No, it's not about me. It's about the guy I'm talking about. It's the guy we're proclaiming. That's who it's about." And then Jesus does arrive on the scene, and he starts preaching, and he start, gathers his apostles, and then he has a following. And everybody, and then you know everybody that's around him, you know Peter's and so forth. They're all pointing again at him, that it's about him. And so, that ministry of being able to stand alone if you have to, but then also wait on the Lord to provide you help to to strengthen your drooping shoulders, your weak knees, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so, for those of us who may feel like we're the only ones or we're close to it or we're vastly outnumbered or we're the only ones that believe that stuff, nobody else does, you're not alone. There are many people in this city, many people in this world that follow Jesus Christ. Even if they don't say loudly enough that that temptation, I want to beg of you this morning, do not turn the knob down. You may need to turn the wisdom knob up a little bit more as you do it too, but turn those knobs, the volume of your life, not just your words, but your life as well. Turn it up. Turn the wisdom up and turn the volume up of your life. Because part of the dilemma we've got now is that we've kind of been, um, we've been so told that A, um, w- w- the, the bulk of what God is doing in the world is about what he's doing for us personally, which is really not true. Um, God has an agenda that far transcends what's going on in my daily life. My daily life may be a piece of it, My daily life matters to God, et cetera, et cetera. But boy, what a mistake it would be for me to think that the whole thing is really about me and that the Christian faith is really about my personal transactional kind of relationship uh, to God. It's not, not fundamentally. We use language sometimes. Uh, We do that, uh, you know, uh, and I know we mean well, and it's, it's biblical, but through emphasis, you can make almost anything heresy. So it's stuff like, Hey, God knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head. Very biblical, very great. But the more we hammer on that, the more we begin to think that it's us that's special. Does that make sense? It's not us. It's him that's special. What what makes the fact that he knit us together in our mother's womb and knows all the hairs on our heads special is that he's special. (laughs) If he's not big, if he's not important, if he's not glorious, then none of that matters. It makes it very small. The smaller we make God, the smaller we make ourselves. At the same time, we don't even realize it. But the, the greater we make ourselves, sometimes the smaller God gets. At the same time, so we can't get caught up in that trap. Having said that, okay, and I, I'm going to give you a lesson of uh, from the world of sports cards here. All right, I don't know if we have any sports card collectors in here, but uh, about I don't know three four months ago it's actually in the summer now. That I think about it. Um, there's a baseball card shop right next to the Grand here called Honey Hole Collectibles, right here on Juniper. Love going in there. Those are my people. Uh, and I, I went in there after church one Sunday and bought a box of baseball cards. And I took it back to my house, and I opened up the, the lid. First pack, nothing fancy, just a pretty standard set of uh, box of cards. Um, opened up the first pack, about three cards in. Boom! There it is. Fernando Tatis Jr., autographed, one of one. Only one on earth. I'm telling you what, I don't know what my prayer life was like that week, but it must have worked. And I held this thing up and just put it on a scale. If I just had a regular card of his that was autographed or something, I don't know, maybe 150 bucks, something like that. That, that, that one is easily in the four digits and maybe more. So I thought to myself, I was excited because it was him. I love that guy as a player. It's autographed. My inner child from childhood. Who who is used to opening uh, baseball card packs from my youth, was excited. And then I also thought this is going to keep my daughter in college. That's a good thing. And I was so excited to get this one of one, right? So that's a one of one, one slash one, okay? However, there's another part of my collection. The part that's actually from my childhood called the junk wax era. And these cards are barely worth the cardboard they're printed on, because they were so overprinted. And those of you who were alive at the time, late '80s, early '90s, you'll know you could find baseball cards anywhere—gas stations, uh, you know—they had packs of cards everywhere, and they overprinted those things so much they're pretty much useless. Um, they don't have any worth much at all. And so, usually, if I have a friend come up, "Hey, man, I'm going to show you some cards. Well, what years are they from?" Uh, I got like 87 to 93, you know, unless it's one of a couple of cards and they're in flawless condition, they're not worth anything. Those would be one out of a million. All right? so You got one of one, the only one in existence, one in a million. Okay? following with me? You know, the the 88 Donruss Bip Roberts, right? One of one out of emphasis here's where we go wrong we get to thinking about ourselves so much you knit us together in a mother's womb he knows every hair on our head we think that we're one of one we're not he's one of one <laughs> not us he's one of one we are over here we're in the we're in the kind of you know in the, in the heap of people now, it's not that he doesn't know it, but because he's one of one, he provides some worth to us over here. That other than, if, other than what he bestows upon us, we don't have any worth. So what we do is we, we convince ourselves that we're special, we're unique, it's all about us, da, da 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 when in reality, over here, guys, do you realize we're one, I am one of 2.35 billion Christians on the planet. One of 2.35 billion. We are not by ourselves. So I can sit there and I can feel by myself and I got to think that God's looking down from heaven going, man, have you read the Bible you preach? You remember what I said to Elijah? You remember what I said to Paul? You are not by yourself. Now, here in San Diego, here's your guess, Pew Research, what percentage of our city claims, self-identifies themselves as Christians? The answer is 68%. Now, you're baffled by that, too, because you're going, well, I barely know anybody that even goes to church. Well, you start getting into what they mean by that, and things drop precipitously. You ask them how often they pray, ask them how often they attend church, ask them how often they serve and do these other things, and the numbers usually down in the 16 to 21% range. So you've got, you know, more than two-thirds of the city saying that they self-identify as Christian, and you've got maybe a third or less, well, less than a third, really, actually living it out. So here's what I'm suggesting to you. The problem isn't that there aren't enough Christians, technically. The problem is we don't have enough Christians with volume, right? Because if I'm not praying, I'm not going to church, I'm not serving anybody, I'm not doing whatever, what am I doing? I'm either one of wanting myself all the time I'm religious, I just don't need the church, I don't need anybody else because it's me and God. I'm one of one. Or it's, I need to feel like, or I, I, I rationally believe in Jesus, but I just don't live out the implications of what that means, as though Jesus gives us an option to kind of just vaguely believe in him without following him. That's never an option in the Bible. It commi- when you come to belief in Christ, it's leave everything and follow me. That's the call. It's not just for the 12 apostles. Remember? And then the call he gives us in Matthew 28 to everybody, go. Go. Tim the Baptist, Emily the Baptist, Nora the Baptist, Rich the Baptist. Get out there and tell somebody. And you can tell them with your life, you can tell them whatever, but I would encourage you to find some way to say it with words. We've lost our big boy and big girl words. We have been scared into silence. We have been spiritually gaslighted to the point of becoming completely and utterly uh, without witness in a culture that badly, badly needs good news. So my question is, uh, are, do we have enough of what John had, the Holy Spirit's power and presence, to get us to say it out loud and to say it louder? Say what? Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. His baptism is superior. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and his sacrifice alone is sufficient. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. You know, uh, and if I, but if I was, it'd still be true. I don't need, I mean, God's, the the validity of the gospel does not go up and down based on opinion polls, guys. And nor is God particularly concerned about, you know, public opinion of the job he's doing running the universe. What he's concerned about is whether or not the people that call himself, call themselves Christian, that actually take his son's name and put it in their own identification, if they're actually living out and proclaiming his son. He doesn't need more, a higher percentage of people who identify on a survey. He needs more disciples. He needs more Johns. And so when I look at the ministry of John the Baptist and how he's viewed by God, he got it. He got it. This was the message. Guys, there's a one of one. And the good news is, he's available to everybody. Everybody can have him. And when you do, so it's not like only one person gets a hold of Jesus. He came so that we might have life and have it to the full. He came so that everyone would be able to access him. But John never thought, never thought, and even when people tried to, hey, John, you know what? You got a lot of fans here. So, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then how about this one? He must increase, I must decrease, John says. Maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. Maybe we need to get out of the one on one slot. And get back over here where we belong, which is in the yes. We're part of the people of God who are here on this earth. And some of us will say it loudly with words. Some of us will say it loudly with music. And we'll say it through service. And we'll say it through the way that we live. We'll say it the way that God leads us to and do it as a people. But boy, don't not say it. Say it. Say what? Jesus, yes, he got it right down here in the front row. He's the king. That's what. And so now we go, we behold him joyful and triumphant. Right now we're going to gather around the Lord's table. We're going to take the supper together. If if you came in and you'd like the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, and you didn't get them on the way in in a little bag or something, just kind of casually put your hand in the air. We'll find you and get them to you. We do this every week here at New Vintage, and it does a couple of things. It anchors us back to the core gospel, and it also reminds us this is a God's got a big old table that we're sitting around with everybody today. Um, and I want you to, to know that as we're sitting here, you're taking communion on the same day and around the same time as a lot of people. You're not alone. If called to say it on our own totally by ourselves, we're the last person on earth, We should be ready to do that but glory be to God we don't have to we're surrounded by the body of Christ Uh, anybody else need the elements go ahead and put your hand in the air the bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus so we take this now let us pray heavenly father with bread and cup we say thanks for the body and blood of Jesus we give you thanks the one of one the only one, the only Messiah, the only way. He is glorious in the name, in life, and in eternity. He is the one of one. He is the only one, Father, and we say now in our taking of the bread and the cup, thank you, and we pledge ourselves to saying it louder, living it louder. We pray this in Jesus' name.